All right, the earth is the Lord's, the Midas trap, and how to avoid it. The topic, I, I thought, let's make it as clear as we can. The title is 10 Reasons You Should Start Giving More to Your Local Church. 10 Reasons You Should Start Giving More to Your Local Church. I want to start with Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, and then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, and nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. That's interesting. Because what would happen, you'd have, you'd have wind, you'd have things go wrong with the vine, and before the grapes were ready to harvest, very commonly, they'd just drop off on the ground. Like apples that fall from a tree early and just kind of rot. And it's sort of waste. And God says, if you honor me, I will, I will keep the grapes from falling off your vine before you harvest them. It's only our fallen tendency to accumulate that causes all of us in this room to do the math and to reason that if we give more to the Lord, we obviously will end up with less for ourselves. You got a piece of pie, you cut it into four pieces, you got huge pieces of pie. You take the same piece of pie and you cut it into 16 pieces and you just get a tiny piece of pie. It's not rocket science. So a bigger piece for God must mean smaller pieces for me and bill paying and investing and all sorts of things. And, and nothing makes Jesus' words about denying self nothing makes those words more punchy and vivid than the call to regularly part with bill paying holiday funding pleasure producing money to extend his church and, and that's why, along with the biblical commands obligating sacrificial giving, the Bible extends promises. Commandments, sure, but also promises encouraging sacrificial giving. Over and over, repeatedly, our faithful God promises faithful giving to the Lord will bring his best blessings into our lives. And I want to list ten of them. So we've got to hurry. One, regular giving organizes our lives. The Apostle Paul said people should learn to give regularly on the first day of the week. If you want to see that, 1 Corinthians 16.2, on the first day of the week, each one of you 
is to put aside and save as he may prosper. Now, the background of those instructions, it grows out of Paul's desire, if you were to read the whole context. The church in Jerusalem is having a hard time, and Paul wants the church at Corinth to provide financial aid and blessing for the church in Jerusalem. But he doesn't want their giving to just be an emotional, one-shot appeal that he himself makes as the fundraiser when he arrives. You know how that works. Missionaries come. Up on the screen, they don't put, here's our airfare. Here's what it costs to run our car over there. Uh, Here's our food bill. And here's the kids' education bill. Because they're not stupid. So what they put up there is, these are the kids in the orphanage that we feed. Right? Because, well, that tugs at our hearts. And so, Paul, he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he wants them to be ready to help the church in Jerusalem. But he doesn't want to make their response based on what a good job he does at sort of tugging at their hearts when he arrives. And that's why, in the rest of the words from that verse that I just quoted, he tells them he he doesn't want them taking up some big offering when he arrives. He doesn't want it to be his presence and his emotional appeal that sort of boosts the offering. He tells them, no. No, your your giving should be organized giving. That it should be a dominant part of their regular worship. It should be regular the first day of every week. And it should include everyone, each one of you. But the main point is that the Sunday giving should be planned. It should be prioritized. Each one of you should put aside and save as he may prosper. So in other words, people should should organize their lives Monday through Saturday, putting something aside, planning, thinking about Sunday. Organize all of their lives Monday through Saturday to make sure they aren't They aren't caught short. They aren't caught unprepared. You you put your plan for Sunday into your weekly budget. Pastor Don, how's that a blessing? Let me tell you how it's a blessing. Nothing will help you remember God like that. Oh, I was going to get that new pair of $300 running shoes, but I've got Sunday coming. Oh, we were going to go out for dinner for the fourth time this week, but Sunday's coming. Do you get what I'm saying? Every one of you, each of you, Paul says, 
You start thinking about Sunday during the week. You put something aside. You plan. You put it into your budget. If you don't, you know what happens. The money gets eaten up. and I'd love to help you out, God, but kind of broke. Been a full week. Paul says, don't let that happen. Not for God's sake. For yours. For yours. Regular giving organizes our lives. Two. Giving makes our spiritual lives authentic and meaningful. Martin Luther said, Every person needed two conversions. One of the heart, the other of the pocketbook. It was called a pocketbook back then. Nothing weakens our lives like hypocrisy. It affects our praying. It affects everything about our Christian walk. Giving moves our commitment to God out of the realm of theory and ceremony into practice. Sunday giving brings God's visible reign into weekly living. It is one sure way to keep your faith from just being pious talk. Paul says this, it's actually a sign of God's grace in our lives. Just as you abound in everything, so he he talks about what what he means, There's, there's faith, utterance, knowledge, earnestness, love. See that you abound in this gracious work also. And he's talking... He's talking about giving. He's talking about the giving of money. And so, this is Paul's reminder to me that I can't make when the offering plate comes around. I can't make my offering a separate part of my participation in God's grace. I can't separate that from the other parts of my Christian walk. I can't separate... The offering plate comes around. I can't separate that from what I'm getting out of my Bible reading during my devotions. Answers to prayer. My marriage. That grace is of one one piece. God's gracious work in my heart is of one piece. You can't segment it up like the pieces of an orange. It's organic. And the promise is, God will multiply his grace. Hear this. God will multiply his grace on all areas of my life as I honor him in this area of my life. This grace also. Why would he pick that one? Well... It doesn't cost me a lot to pick up my Bible and read it for a little bit during the day, right? It doesn't cost me a lot to bow my head and say grace before meals or prayer time at night, however you do it. You can be in and out of here, you know, you can, if you want, you can come in it. A lot of people, 10 after 10, out at 11.20, done for the week. It's not that hard. But this grace, this one, this, one, this one has nerve endings to it. The grace of giving. 
Paul says, these are all attached. It's the same root system, God's grace, that feeds all of these things. See that you abound in this gracious work also. Three. Giving opens up our lives to greater responsibility in God's kingdom. Luke 16. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, he's talking about money, you haven't been using it, and he doesn't mean you, you don't have good investments or a good accountant or you know, your, your portfolio isn't balanced. He means, he means in terms of honoring God with it. If you haven't been faithful in the use of it, who will entrust true riches to you? Now, notice those words, use and entrust. If you haven't been faithful in using it, who's going to entrust you with true riches? So faithful stewardship, that's use, relates directly to deeper participation in Christ. God entrusts that to us. God knows how faithful I am with whatever wealth he has provided. He sees what I give. More importantly, he sees what I spend on myself. But I've come to see more promise in that truth than threat. God uses my wealth as a great testing ground of my faithfulness to him. Like a doctor checks your blood pressure. And as my life proves genuine in this discipline, other doors of growth open up. Your giving doesn't just grow your charitable receipt. Your giving grows you in ways you can't fully see yet. Somehow, without getting messed up with some goofy, unscriptural prosperity theology... But in shunning that, I don't want to ignore the fact that it seems Jesus places some kind of link with my family, my marriage, my prayer life. He links that with my faithfulness when the offering plate comes around. I don't know how else to read that. That seems to be the the kernel of Mysterious truth in Jesus' haunting question in verse 11. If you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? Now notice again, money isn't the same as true riches, but the giving of money is the means to true riches. You see that in those verses? It's right there in front of you. Four, giving reduces the downward drag of selfishness in my heart. My heart is like yours. 
if we're not very careful, we get more joy out of getting than giving. Look at the person beside you and say, you get more joy out of getting than giving. Yeah. They're all like that. So are you. And God aims not just to save me and take me to heaven. He has a plan. Part of that plan is to root that selfishness out of his children. It's a huge undertaking. Giving is the spade with which he digs that out of my heart. Hear this. The battle with covetousness must be fought on an ongoing basis. That's the reason Paul says every week, weekly giving. You don't do a check once a year. Pastor Don, it's the same money. Give you a big lump at the end of the year or monthly divided by 12 or weekly divided by 52. What's the difference? And what, what Paul says is you need this medicine every week. It's not that the church needs your money. The church you need, you need this medicine. You've got a disease. And it has to be cured. It will take you to hell. How serious is God about rooting that out of my heart? We never end this battle with greed once and for all. I've walked with Jesus now for... Doing math. Boy, that's a long time. For about uh, 54 years. And there's still selfishness in my heart. Covetousness resides in our nature like aging resides in our nature. It's just there. The only way the back of covetousness is broken in our lives is a regular giving of enough magnitude to cause me to feel the reality of limiting personal consumption. Let me say that sentence again. The only way, you can't pray this out of your heart, The only way the back of covetousness is broken in our lives is a regular giving of enough magnitude to cause me to feel the reality of limiting personal consumption. If it doesn't limit personal consumption, the church can use the money, but it's useless for my heart. It's useless for my heart. A small offering has no effect on a covetous heart. How can it? Satan laughs when God's people tip God financially. That's what's wrong with the tithe, by the way. It's too small. Five. Giving brings protection from the devourer. Those are the words of promise that I read in the opening text. 
the 11th verse. This is God speaking. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in your field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. This is, this is not... This is not some word, faith, greed-promoting promise of unlimited wealth. That's the problem with, by the way, word, faith, name it and claim it, confess it and get it. The problem with that is it doesn't, it doesn't defeat covetousness. It promotes covetousness. Do you see that? If I give God ten and I get a hundred... What's that doing to my greedy, little, black, wicked heart? It's feeding covetousness. This is a promise about the enjoyment of life. Israel's crops were being eaten by pests as quickly as they grew. And the people worked hard, but they didn't enjoy the fruit of their effort. That was the problem. And so God promised to protect their work as they honored him with their offerings. Now, there is a principle here. It's this. The issue at stake is, how, how, how do we secure our lives in this world? And the beauty of our Malachi text is the way it deals with... It deals with a threat over Israel's future that she was totally unable to control. This was not an age where farmers could spray for, for pests or they could insure their crops. They were vulnerable. So how do you cope with threatening circumstances that you can't control? See, that's the issue. How do you cope with threatening circumstances that you can't control? And the answer is, you honor God with what you can control. And the promise here is God will bring his own protection to enforce the lives of those who honor him with their giving. Can you, can you really afford to live without that? We think it's risky to give, don't we? And the truth is, the risk is the other way. That's where the risk is. Six. Giving helps and blesses other people. So in my giving, God allows me to partner with him in touching the world and others with the love of Christ and the gospel. And he said that he would actually audit these gifts himself, that none would lose reward. Matthew 25, 35 to 40. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. In prison, you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when do we see you hungry? And feed you, or, or thirsty, and give you something to drink. And when do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it. 
to me. And the fact is, in this world and around the globe, that takes my giving to get a lot of that done. God will reward that. Seven. Giving helps to set our hearts on eternal realities. Did you sing it with me this morning? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. How's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? I mean, we all want to love God more than we do, but we get earthbound. That's that prone to wander part. We get earthbound in our thinking. We get earthbound in our living. Sometimes we deceive ourselves by thinking we can generate love for God if we crinkle up our faces and put our hands up a little higher and, and just repeat that song four more times. That, that, uh, it doesn't work. Jesus said our material possessions have a direct effect on our desire for God. And we wish there was something else he said. He said material goods prevent even the serious study of God's word from having a good effect on my heart. He said material possessions make it almost impossible to have a fruitful walk with the Lord. Where did he say that? He said that in Matthew chapter 13... Verse 22, and the one on whom the seed, the seed, by the way, is the word. The parable tells us that. That's not me. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is a man who hears the word and the worry of this world and, and, and the deceitfulness of wealth. Choke the word. And it becomes this. I've often wondered, I get a lot of religious periodicals and magazines, and, and every edition, there's another new translation. This, we have to have more translations. There's, there's the, the Millennial uh, Study Bible. There's the Woman's Application Bible. There's the Left-Handed Men's uh, Reference Edition. There's 11 different languages and, and 52 different editions uh, and covers and, and, I, and, and five, every one. This one you can understand. This one you can understand. And every time I read those glossy, full-page color ads in those Christian magazines, I look at them and I say, are we really this dense? Or might there be something else? Is it just possible that one of the most prosperous nations on earth can never understand this book properly? The deceitfulness of riches. Choke. I will never forget being in, uh, here's how long ago it was. It was when, anybody remember Diana Sweets? Those restaurants? And it was in Yorkdale Mall. used to have one. And I picked up my brother and his wife from the airport. We were sitting there having lunch on the way home. And, and it was just something that my brother Peter got in his mouth. 
And at first I thought he was kidding. This is a great brother, eh? He's, he's like, he's reaching for his throat. Sorry, he's reaching for his throat. And I'm eating my meatloaf, and will you keep it down? You know, you're embarrassing us. And all of a sudden his face is getting redder and redder. And then he starts snorting. Choke. Isn't, isn't it a violent image? A violent image? And there's something about our material goods and the Choke the word. Just hands around the throat. Regular sacrificial giving frees us from the deception of sin and truly liberates our lives. Giving brings the life and power of God's word to fruitful germination in our lives. The love of wealth causes all other spiritual pursuits to turn sluggish and unreal. You can't pray that away. You have to give that away. We all need to have enough, give enough to train our affections toward eternity. And proportionately small offerings can never do that. Give more. Jesus said, this will keep your possessions from choking the life of God out of you. Eight. Giving evangelizes the world with the gospel. Nothing is closer to God's heart than this. The plain truth is giving sends missionaries. I talk to Murray regularly, and he's just so thankful that we always, we, we set aside enough money that even through the summer months, and we had a dip in our giving in the summer months, we set aside enough money that we didn't miss, we didn't miss a dime in terms of payment for our missionaries and all of them on the field. And, and there are right now dozens of missionaries on the field who are right on the edge of coming home. Dozens. Because with the economy and other factors, and churches just say, I'm sorry, we can't support this one, this one, this one, this one anymore. And they just stop. And the truth is, and I don't, I'm not, it's not my job to, you know, sort every church out. But as a rule, I know some of those churches. And these aren't churches filled with poor people. These are people all wrapped up in other stuff, spending fortunes on themselves. And missionaries are coming home, and God weeps. It's not, it's not that they can't afford it. It's that they have other priorities. Giving evangelizes the world with the gospel. It's the most important work in the world, and it's totally dependent on the sacrificial giving of God's people. Nine. We're almost done. Giving touches our lives with immortality right now on this earth. The Bible says we are actually laying up treasure in heaven with every gift we give. There are two portions of Scripture that I want to link together. The second one, everybody knows. The first one is a bit less well-known. The first one is Psalm 49, 
16 and 17. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich. Now you have to understand the system where you had land ownership and tenants and people with money were the people with the power. It's, it's still somewhat true, but we have laws and regulations and unions and, and all sorts of things. But then it was, it was very raw. The rich could treat the poor virtually any way he wanted to treat them. Don't be afraid when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house is increased, when he dies, what a revelation this is. He'll carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. The second text, keep this one in mind, is Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not store up so this is the principle of more than, than is actually needed. There's, there's this piling up, piling up. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Well, we don't wrestle much with that or that. Probably not even that. Which is why God sovereignly will send economic recession and depression. Look at your house. Do you you find yourself checking with realtors to see what your house is worth now? What's my house worth? What's it worth? Well, right now, it's worth such and such. If somebody gives you that for it. This wouldn't be the first time in the history of the world... Where there was some kind of an issue where your house is suddenly worth half what it was the month before. So we don't have moths and that kind of stuff. But we do have fickle economies. So what do you do? So storing up, piling up on earth is useless. But there's another way. The same idea, storing up. But you, you treasure in heaven. Paul says every Sunday, Lord's Day, plan the week, budget, set aside. Make sure it's big enough to kill covetousness in your heart. That you have to feel the weight of it in personal spending. So store it up. Pile it up. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... So you can, you, can, um, you can put it here, right? Can you see that? You can put it there. Or you can put it there. You can pile up treasure on earth, or you can pile it up in heaven. But the, the thing is, in this part you can't prevent. This follows this. If you pile it up on earth... That you, can't, you can't pile up treasure on earth and have your heart in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying in this text. You might think you can, but you can't. Not deep inside. You can pile it up on earth. You can pile it up in heaven. That's up to you. But that's the only part of the process that's up to you. Your heart, you don't decide where that goes. It follows the treasure. 
So there's a kind of upside-down glory in this world. You can see the material glory, can't you, on television, social media. The world's picture of the good life, the Kardashians. Can you believe it? Like, do we all just bang our heads on cement when we were little that we watch this kind of stuff? There's this good life. And when you die, God says that God gets the last say. <laughs> no, no hearses following you to the cemetery. No, no uh, U-Hauls following the hearse. Remember Billy Graham said, you just leave it. Remember when my dad died, 2008. Went to the hospital, collect his things. And it, and it was, you know those bags that seal across the top? It was a big one. I will never forget this as long as I live. Rini waited in the car. I went in. I got this plastic bag. And there was uh, the shirt he was wearing, belt, pants, underwear, socks. Here. And I walked out, carrying this bag, looking at this. MPH in a bag. And I was so glad that, that, and you've all got the same kind of story. I'm not claiming anything special, but I was so glad that, that for 82 years there was this guy who just followed Jesus and preached the gospel. And there's just no way you could measure his worth by what was in that bag. But that's not true of everybody. There are billionaires. Listen to me. There are billionaires. You pick up their things at the hospital, and there is nothing else. There's what you got for your life, right there, in the bag. And so, Jesus says, Use your head. Use your head. You're a vapor. Lay up treasure in heaven. It's there forever. It brings eternal joy. It wins the lost. Use your head. Jesus says there's a glory that carries on. There's a glory that doesn't have an expiry date. It multiplies forever and ever. God will see to it. Philippians chapter 4. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself. Look it. I seek the... It's an accounting term. I seek the profit which increases to your account. You got an account. It's better than a tax-free savings account. You can, you can deposit there. I seek the profit 
This is Paul repeating the point of Jesus' words, store up treasures in heaven. Paul's emphasizing the very same point. It's the almost too good to be true idea that there comes eternal profit. That's Paul's words. Giving to the Lord's work. Profit in the age to come. Safety in this age by keeping covetousness out of my heart. It's a win-win. Now and eternally. It's a win-win. Ten. Giving fills the heart with life's truest joy. We should always take note when the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, take the effort to tell us to remember something. Whenever the Bible says, remember this, it's because I have a tendency to not rivet my attention to it, to think about other things, and maybe to be forgetful. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. More blessed to give than to receive. I mean, there's no question at all that it feels blessed to receive, doesn't it? We all like getting gifts. But when Paul calls us to remember what Jesus said about the greater blessing of giving, he, he surely means that I, Don Horbin, am highly likely to forget it. I'll remember it seasonally. There'll be some emotional appeal. You know, we sponsor several uh, Child Care Plus kids, have for years. And, and so I'll, I'll remember it seasonally, but it's a hard truth to constantly hold in the mind that there's a greater blessing in giving than in receiving. And he means most Christians have yet to learn in full measure that God has greater joy for his people than receiving. He's got something better for you than receiving. It's the fuller, deeper, more lasting joy of, of becoming a giver. Not just giving occasionally, but becoming a giver. And I urge you, discover it sooner rather than later. Don't live one more day not knowing where life's greatest joy is found. Here's the last thing about giving. You can study it till the cows come home. You can learn all the verses in the Bible, and none of that will turn you into a non-covetous, joyful, giving person. The way you learn to start giving is the same way you learn to start praying. You pray. And the way you learn to be a giver is you give. And if you don't start when the offering plate comes by, you won't start. Let's pray.